our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 15 to 29. David was in the wilderness of Ziph in Horish when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then Saul's son, Jonathan, came to David in Horish and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, Don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it is true. Then the two of them made a covenant in the Lord's presence. Afterward, David remained in Horish, while Jonathan went home. Some Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah and said, David is hiding among us in the strongholds in Horish on the hill of Hakalah, south of Jeshimon. Now, whenever the king wants to come down, let him come down. Our part will be to hand him over to the king. May you be blessed by the Lord, replied Saul, for you have shown concern for me. Go and check again. Investigate where he goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is extremely cunning. Investigate all the places where he hides. Then come back to me with accurate information, and I'll go with you. If it turns out he really is in the region, I'll search for him among all the clans of Judah. So they went to Sif ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness near Mon in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went to look for him. When David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Mon. Saul heard of this and pursued David there. Saul went along one side of the mountain, and David and his men went along the other side. Even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Then a messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, because the Philistines have raided the land. So Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to engage the Philistines. Therefore, that place was named the Rock of Separation. From there, David went up and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Hellas Church. It's good to be with you today. My name is Andrew. I, too, serve as one of the pastors here and have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures today. But before we do that, uh, years ago, I had the opportunity to run in my first uh, long-distance race. Now, it was a half-marathon race, which might not seem like a very big deal to you, those of you who might uh, be distance runners, but I grew up playing baseball into college, and so I only ran 90 feet, at most 180 feet at a time, so half a, a half a marathon was a really big deal for me. And so uh, my roommate, a guy named Marshall, asked me to join him in doing this, and so we decided to train together, which was a good call because there were many days when the two of us did not want to get out of our bed or leave our apartment to go and train for this race. And on days when I did not want to get up and get going, he would come knock on my door and insist that I come, and he would encourage me with the words, it's going to be worth it in the end. When you cross that finish line, it's going to feel great. And, and then there were days when he didn't want to get out of his room, and so I would go and knock on his door and, and say the same thing. Hey, I know you don't want to go right now, but I promise you it will be worth it in the end. Let's get up. Let's get out. Let's get going. And we would train almost you know five, six days a week leading up to this race. And then 
when the race came and we ran this half marathon together, it was just an incredible experience. I don't know if you've ever been a part of one of those big uh, official races, but they're incredible. They're so encouraging because you have people stationed all along the way with signs and, and water stations and Gatorade stations and power gel stations, which I didn't even know what that was, but I, I took some of that and, and it got all over me and I kept running the race as these people were encouraging me along the way. And, and Marshall and I would just look at one another and and remind each other, keep going, keep going. Even when the cramps started to, to hit, even when other things started to hit, we would encourage one another to keep going, that it would be worth it in the end. And when we crossed that finish line and found this feast awaiting us there, I mean, there was all kinds of food, all kinds of drinks, all kinds of people, all kinds of bands playing music at the end of this, this thing. When we crossed that finish line, it, it was one of the most gratifying experiences of my life. But it was one of those experiences that would not have materialized had Marshall not been with me. And if I had not been with him, it was one of those moments where I realized just how important it is to run alongside someone. And when it comes to the Christian faith, and, and one of the biggest metaphors for the Christian life that pops up time and time again in the New Testament is, is comparing the Christian faith to a type of race. And it is a race that you and I must come alongside one another and run together. Community and friendship, encouragement and accountability, all of those dynamics are essential to the Christian life. And I would go so far to say that you and I will not cross the finish line. Our lives will not end in faith apart from the ministry of encouragement, apart from being linked up with other runners, other disciples who are encouraging us and spurring us along the way community and friendship are essential. You know, one of our core values here at the Hallows Church is conveyed through the image of what's called the toast. And the toast is this idea that we recognize life is hard. We recognize that life can be discouraging. We recognize that faith is difficult to exercise given all the challenges that we face as we journey through a fallen world. And so we want to be a people who value the toast, meaning we want to edify and build up and encourage. We want to celebrate evidences of grace in one another's lives, just as those stations would be set up along that half marathon and people would hold up power gel packets, and they would hold out cups of Gatorade, and they would hold out cups of water. We want to run our race of faith together, holding up evidences of grace, holding up toasts, so to speak, as we encourage one another to keep going, to keep going. I promise you, it will be worth it in the end. And when you cross the finish line in faith and you step into the presence of Christ and the feast that is awaiting you in the new heavens and the new earth, you will look back on your time spent in this world and you will recognize that every step of faith was worth it. Every exercise of endurance was worth it because it will be worth it in the end. And this dynamic of encouragement is needed because Again, life is hard, and it can be challenging. And this dynamic of encouragement is something that every single one of us needs. And if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 23, and you're going to find a moment where even David himself needed encouragement. 
that this need of encouragement was needed in his life as well. You've been journeying with us long enough up to now to know that David has been on the run for quite a while. He's been fleeing the hand of Saul that was trying to take his life. And Saul wanted to, to crush David. He did not want David's influence to grow. He did not want David to ascend to the throne because that would bump him off of it. And so he wanted to put David to death. And so David's been on the run for quite a while now, hiding in the desert, hiding in the wilderness, hiding in all kinds of places. And when we find him here in chapter 23, he's hanging out in the hill country, just kind of in the south of Judah, a place called Ziph. And there he's hiding once again because Saul has come to take his life. That's what he's wanting to do. And David, you can imagine, is pretty discouraged at this point in time. You can imagine that he's tired as he's been on the run for so long, living as a fugitive from the law, so to speak. And and he probably wants to give up. But then we are cued into this detail at the beginning of this passage that his friend Jonathan, his friend Jonathan comes to him to encourage his faith in God, to strengthen his hand, so to speak. And I love what Jonathan does in this passage. Because Jonathan doesn't sit back and wait for David to shoot him an email to say, hey man, I'm really struggling, I'm really discouraged. Can you come encourage me? David did not... Uh, Jonathan did not sit back and wait for David to shoot up a signal flare in the sky that he could find him in the wilderness to bring a word of encouragement because he suddenly realizes that David could use it. No, Jonathan just takes it upon himself and proactively pursues David in the wilderness to encourage him, to strengthen him, because this is what encouragers do. Encouragers move towards people encouragers are not waiting for discouraged people to, to, to disclose the fact that they are discouraged. In fact, discouraged people never ask for encouragement. They rarely ever ask for encouragement because they assume that there's no encouragement to be given. That's why they're discouraged, right? And so when we think about this need of encouragement, we should just assume that everyone, needs, everyone around us needs to be encouraged. And as we are assuming that everyone around us needs to be encouraged, we start moving in their direction because encouragers move towards others. And so this form of encouragement that that Jonathan brings to David, it is proactive. He's not waiting for David to ask for it. And it is personal. He goes himself to meet Jonathan in, to meet David in the wilderness. Now you know that Jonathan moving in this direction would also put his life in danger. That to encourage David in the wilderness, Jonathan took some risk, but he was willing to do it because he loved David. He cared for David, and he moves towards David in the wilderness. And when you look at the nature of this encouragement that Jonathan brings to David, it's, it's not unlike what goes down in a guy named William Wilberforce's life. Perhaps you've heard the name. He was a a uh, famous, influential abolitionist in England. And, and he worked hard for years trying to abolish slavery in that country. And he would petition parliament. He would work through the government. He l- pulled every political lever he could to get that to happen. But he worked for years without seeing much progress. And he became very discouraged, and he was almost ready to give up when suddenly John Wesley decides to write him a letter. And John Wesley is on his deathbed thinking about Wilberforce, thinking about the life he's been living up to that point and how difficult it's been for him to go for all the things that he's going for. So he pens a letter 
And this is what he writes to Wilberforce. He wrote, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and the power of his might till even American slavery shall vanish away before it. And six days later, Wesley died. But Wilberforce continued to go for 46 years fighting for that cause, seeking to abolish slavery, not giving up because some wind was put in his cells from a proactive personal friend named John Wesley. The ministry of encouragement, the need for it is apparent in all of our lives. But let's think about the essence of encouragement. What is the essence of encouragement? When you look at Jonathan's example here, you get a a pretty good idea. Because we're told that Jonathan went to David to encourage David's faith in God. Literally translated, that phrase means Jonathan went to strengthen David's hand in God. He went to grab David's hand and to place it in the hand of God. That's what he was trying to do in encouraging him. Now, the word hand pops up at least seven times in this chapter. You see hand referred to David. Or Earlier in the story, David uh, crushed the Philistines. He defeated Goliath. And, and we're told that he did this all, that his hand kind of brought about that victory. You have a guy named Abiathar whose hand also brings an ephod so that David can discern the will of the Lord earlier in the chapter. Saul's hand is pictured and referred to as as he's trying to grasp power and control from David. The, The image and the metaphor of the hand, it symbolizes this power struggle. And encouragement in this chapter is about whose hand are you holding? Or better yet, whose hand is holding you? And so when Jonathan comes to encourage David's faith in God, he's coming to to help David rely upon the presence, the promises, and the power of God to take his hand and to put it in the hand of the one who holds all things together. This was the essence of the encouragement that Jonathan provided. Now, specifically... When Jonathan shows up to encourage David to strengthen his hand in the Lord, yes, his presence is a big deal. You know, the ministry of presence can be very encouraging. When somebody just comes alongside you and they just want to be with you, that can be very encouraging. But but Jonathan doesn't just come alongside David and, and sit in silence. As important as the ministry of presence is, and as wise as it can be for us to be quiet sometimes when we are encouraging a discouraged person and we're just wanting to be with them at some point in time, if our encouragement is going to take on a gospel shape, we're going to have to open our mouths and to speak lovingly, compassionately, gracefully what is true. Because your ministry of presence will expire. You can only be with another person for so long. Your ministry of presence isn't ultimate. The only thing that abides in those moments is the word of the Lord. It's when we speak that which is true, a truth that can transcend every circumstance, every situation, every discouraging drop that we experience in this life. And so the essence of encouragement that you see being modeled by Jonathan is on one hand, yes, he's being present, 
but he's also speaking some things. He says a couple things to David. He reminds David of God's promises. He says, look, you're going to be king. God has already declared it to be so. And he reminds David of these promise, of the, the promise that God had made and what God is doing in his life. But then he also assured David of God's provision. He assured David of God's provision saying, look, not only will you be king, you will also be delivered from Saul's hand. He's not going to get you. He's not going to stop you. He's not going to defeat you. And so you have this incredible ministry of encouragement Jonathan is bringing to David. And it's a type of encouragement that we too want to bring into one another's lives. Yes, we want to be together. We want to be present with one another. We want to weep with those who weep. We want to sit in silence when it's time to be quiet, knowing when to speak and when not to speak. But if our ministry of encouragement is going to be different from CrossFit, we're going to have to speak words. I don't know if you guys have tapped into the exercise culture nowadays, but the exercise culture, whether it be CrossFit, Peloton, Escalon, or whatever the case may be, all of those environments are incredibly positive and incredibly encouraging. It's almost nauseating when you kind of look in, because I don't go do that, when you look in and you hear all the encouraging positive words that are happening there, and it's, it's crazy. But the thing about CrossFit or Peloton and these exercise environments is that everyone is, your, your hand is not really being put in anybody else's hand. In other words, you're saying, hey, you can do this. You can make it. You can, you're stronger than you think. You're stronger than you realize. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And that's the nature of that encouragement. But when it comes to gospel encouragement, when it comes to the ministry of encouragement that we're seeing Jonathan bring into David's life and the types of encouragement that we want to bring into one another's lives, we're not telling each other, look, you can do this. We're not telling each other that you don't need a hand to hold or that there's someone in the universe that's not ready and willing to hold your hand. We are going to say, look, your God is able. Your God is strong. Your God has made promises that he's never going to break. Your God is going to provide for whatever you need. He's going to provide. We're going to speak words that point us in God's direction because you want to think about encouragement, this is how I would define it. Gospel encouragement, biblical encouragement is when we move towards others so that others can move towards God. We move towards others so others can move towards God. That's the direction we're moving. That's the trajectory that we are following. This is what Jonathan does for David. And Lord willing, this is what we will do for one another, too. There's a guy by the name of Scott Swain who uh, wrote an article on encouragement where he introduced a, a, a helpful metaphor for when you're ministering to a discouraged person. He says, oftentimes when we think about encouragement, we think about trying to, we, we imagine a cup. And we consider the discouraged person's cup is filled up with all the wrong stuff. Their cup's filled up with anxiety, it's filled up with fear, it's filled up with all those dynamics. And so our job as an encourager is to come and we have to empty that cup so we can fill it up, so we can fill it up with good things, true things, pure things, hopeful things, helpful things. And so this imagery of the cup insists on an emptying process before the refilling can begin.
too simplistic when we talk about the complexity of what it means to be human. Because not all anxiety that a person feels is sinful. Not all fear that a person feels is, is sinful. Not, not all of that needs necessarily to be poured out. So he says, instead of thinking about a cup, I want you to think about a scale. A scale where on one hand, yes, you may have these real emotions that aren't going to go away easily. They're not going to go away overnight. Some of them are necessary for what you're going through. And if you're not feeling them, that may be a sign of unhealth or a lack of health and all these things. He says, but when you think about the scale, rather than trying to remove all that negative stuff, he says, instead, when you encourage a discouraged person, you want to put truth and promises and provision and presence, hopeful, helpful elements. You want to put those things on the other side of the scale to start to try to tip them in the person's heart and to tip the scale a bit in a person's life, to bring a little bit more balance so that they can begin to view their location and their situation and their circumstances in light of what's real, that they could see what they're feeling in the light of a much bigger reality, so they can see what they're struggling with in the light of what God promises to be for them and what God will do in their lives. And so rather than thinking about a cup, we have to pour everything out before we can fill it up. Let's think more about a scale, recognizing that human beings are complex. And we may feel anxious, we may feel fearful, but rather than coming in and trying to dig all that out of a person's life, let's, let's just drop promises. Let's drop provision. Let's provide presence that could encourage them and help tip the scales in a more healthy, balanced, holy direction. And so this essence of encouragement where Jonathan comes to remind David of God's promises, telling him about what's true, and assuring David of, of God's provision, letting him know what's coming, that deliverance is going to come. This dynamic is very similar to what Jesus would do for his disciples. There comes a moment when Jesus is about to depart. He will no longer be present physically with his disciples. And so he wants to prepare them for what they are going to face when he leaves. He knows they're going to be sad. He knows they're, gonna, they're going to be sorrowful. He also knows that the world is going to treat them just as the world treated him. And so in order to prepare the disciples for that transition, what does he do? Well, he drops promises and he provides assurance. He talks about, he encourages them to abide in his word so that his word could abide in him. Why? Because his word is transcendent. His word is eternal. His word sticks with us even when people aren't able to stick with us. And so he's dropping promises. He's assuring provision. Listen to one example of that coming from John 16. Jesus would say to the disciples, so you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Promise and provision. He's dropping these onto the scale of the disciples' lives so that they're not knocked over by the discouragement or the sadness or the sorrow that they're feeling as a result of Jesus' departure. This is why gospel encouragement, again, it's, yes, presence is important, but presence isn't ultimate. Promises are ultimate. God's provision is ultimate. So let's do what's important, but let's always drive to what's ultimate in the ministry of encouragement. 
And so Jonathan is doing this from David. And as the story continues to unfold in chapter 23, everything, the narrative kind of picks up and it starts picking up steam and things happen relatively quickly. Uh, Some folks around Ziph, they're wanting to ingratiate themselves to Saul, perhaps to spare their own lives. And so they're they're willing to give up David's location. That's pretty discouraging. Uh, So they go and they tell Saul they know where he is and they promise to hand David over to him. And and so David and his crew continued to flee. They continued to hide. They continued to move south. They continued to move east, different places of the wilderness. And, And then Saul comes to find David and As David is moving east, they land in an area called the Rock. And at this point in time, tension mounts as Saul and David are on opposite sides of the same hill. Look at verse 26, verse B, or part B of verse 26, which is the second half of that verse. Even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. So they're moving in to capture David. There's a hill separating the two of them. Everything's about to come to a head. And then something surprising happens in verse 27. A surprising development occurs in verse 27 when we're told that a messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly because the Philistines have raided the land. So Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to engage the Philistines. Therefore, that place was named, and you might want to underline this phrase, the rock of separation. Now, the writers of the Old Testament love to use irony. Irony is a major tool in their literary tool belt, and there's so much irony in this moment. There's a hill, a rock, separating Saul's forces from David and his men. Saul's about to catch up with David and overrun David, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Philistines start to attack the people of Israel. And when word reached Saul, Saul had to break his chase of David and go defend Israel from the Philistines. And so think about the irony of what just happened. The Philistines were David's mortal enemies. The Philistines hated David. David slaughtered their hero in Goliath. David has been leading battle after battle after battle to take out Philistine forces, These were David's enemies. They were the biggest enemies that would threaten David throughout all of his reign as king over Israel. And yet God in his providence, God who is always at work in the world, even when we cannot see his hand, even when we cannot tell exactly explicitly what is going on, God in his providence moves through a situation where the Philistines, David's enemies, actually become this surprising source of encouragement for David. A surprising source of encouragement because the Philistines would be the very tool the Lord would use to deliver David from the hand of Saul. There's so much irony in this dynamic, and this irony thrusts us forward to consider the irony of the gospel. The gospel, this the good news of who God is and what God is for his people, all of which that is clearly presented in the person and the work of Jesus. Now, one of the things about 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel are two volumes of one story chronicling chronicling all these dynamics in the history of Israel. And and what's interesting, when you look at 1 and 2 Samuel together, at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, there's a reference to a rock. And the rock is associated with the Lord. 
God is described as being the rock. That's how 1 Samuel begins in Hannah's song. Here it is in chapter 2 of of 1 Samuel. Hannah says there, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you, and there is no rock like our God. And then you come to this moment where the rock of separation protects David from Saul so that when the Philistines attack, they go the other way. That would stick in David's mind so that when David is writing songs and he's writing psalms later, what is he going to do? He's going to carry Hannah's song forward, and he too is going to ascribe God as the rock. You come to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 22. Here's a few references. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. You saved me from violence. My hand was put in your hand, and you delivered me. Verse 32, for who is God besides the Lord, and who is a rock? 2 Samuel 22, 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. God, the rock of my salvation is exalted. All throughout this dynamic in David's life, this experience at the rock of separation would ingrain itself so forcefully upon David's heart and on his mind and on his faith that he would associate the rock of separation with his God, with the one who separated him from the Philistines or from Saul and delivered him from the Philistines. Then when you get So I want you to just think about this surprising source of encouragement that the Philistines came at just the right time, that this rock would become associated with the Lord. And and now I want you to think about the gospel and the surprising source of encouragement that you and I find in the gospel. Do you realize that all of the promises of God and all of the provision of God is contingent upon one event? It's contingent upon one moment. It's an event and a moment that's described by Jesus in Matthew chapter 21. And listen to the language that he uses. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, listen to how Jesus describes himself. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone or the rock that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful, surprising, incredible, amazing in our eyes. Now, Jesus says this just before he's about to move towards the cross, and he knows he's going to be rejected. And he says, look, I am the stone. I am the rock of separation ultimately, and my rejection is actually going to serve your redemption. So this surprising source of encouragement, the provision of God would come through a crucified Savior, through a king who would die on the cross. That is the most surprising source of encouragement that you and I could possibly think of. And the reason why it is so encouraging is because after Jesus, the rock, was rejected and crucified on the cross, he did not stay dead. He was put in a tomb, and another rock, a stone, was rolled in front of it where he laid for three days before that rock was removed, and Jesus stepped out of the grave. And when he did, all of a sudden, he paved the way for our greatest enemy. He paved the way so that our greatest enemy could never overrun us, could never take us, could never defeat us. So that all of a sudden, the resurrection of Jesus creates a rock of separation between us and our greatest enemy. 
between us and the very thing that everyone fears the most, death itself. But then I want you to think a little bit further about that dynamic. This surprising source of encouragement for the believer in Jesus, for those who are trusting in Christ, do you understand that death itself can become an encourager to you? And here's what I mean by that. Death is moving towards everyone. It's coming for us all. But for the believer in Christ, you know what happens when death comes, when death shows up, when death arrives? Death cannot defeat us. The only thing death can do now is encourage us by moving us towards the Lord. Death is now a servant of those who are trusting in the crucified and the resurrected Christ. Death is now an encourager for those who die in faith because death is ushering us into the presence of the living God where we will feast and fellowship with him forever and always. So we want encouragement so that we don't pull up from the race of faith before that day comes. We want to endure in the faith, trusting in the gospel believing that there's this eternal rock of separation between us and our greatest. And this is why Paul would say what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he's boasting, he's bragging, he's celebrating the fact that death cannot defeat him or anyone who is with him in Christ. He says, he says in chapter 15, death, where is your victory? Or death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. And then he would go on to say, your sting has been removed. You are now a servant of those who are in Christ. This is why, yes, we may grow anxious and fearful when death approaches. When the diagnosis comes and it's cancer and it's unlikely to be remedied. Or when COVID begins to wreak havoc on people's lives and we begin to see It's disastrous of facts. We may grow fearful. We may grow anxious. But as we are running alongside others who are encouraging us and strengthening us and reminding us, hey, put your hand in the hand of God. Put your hand in the hand of the one who conquers death, who defeats death, the one who separates you from death, the one who makes death your servant and no longer your enemy. That's where you live. And that's how you're able to keep running. That's how you will cross the finish line in the race of faith and step into the feast that is awaiting sinners and sufferers like you and me when all is said and done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to draw encouragement, courage, strength, faith from the reality of Christ crucified and risen. Would you imprint upon our hearts the memory of your promises and the assurance of your provision? And would you help us to encourage one another in the faith? Help us to help each other move towards the Lord, to move towards you. God, we need you. We need each other. So would you fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might engage in a ministry of encouragement that we all need. The ministry of encouragement that is needed if we are going to 
press on and endure, living by faith in Christ. God, we love you and we pray for this now in Jesus' name.